morning. Turn, if you would, again to Acts 17. Seventeen twenty-two through to the end of the chapter today. This is Paul's famous uh, sermon in the Areopagus, Mars Hill in Athens. Let's pray. Lord, your word asks, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And answers, he who is blameless and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Or takes up reproach against his friend. Our Lord, we read this and recognize that uh, this is not us. Yet we come into your presence this morning to worship, to sing your praises, to hear your word, uh, because there is one who meets these qualifications, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come asking in his name that we can enjoy your presence and that we can hear a word from you and be led to Christ. To receive grace and nourishment for our souls and confidence in the salvation that he provides. In his name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's Word, Acts 17, 22 through 34. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all, by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed 
among whom were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Amen. It's God's word. We want to live enlightened lives. It's a popular word these days. And Kelly and I have been watching through Star Trek and this show where they're zooming around the galaxy, human beings as supposedly an illumined or enlightened race. And there are various races. And basically you can qualify each race on the degree of enlightenment to which they have achieved. We want to be enlightened people. Um, Athens is in one sense an enlightened city. Uh, as Paul has gone through his travels, he hasn't really had a, a reception like this. He's had violent receptions, persecution, um, occasional successful receptions. But here in Athens, the city of, of so far nonviolence, they're willing to, to hear him in the square and then listen to him, invite him into the Areopagus. Um, and as we saw last week, Athens is in another sense enlightened in that it's filled with beauty and architecture and the highest of philosophy. I have a pastor friend who has a, a grown son who's an unbeliever. And I remember talking to him one time and he was, he was saying, you know, this, this guy, he's, um, he, he's very friendly, very amicable, uh, very knowledgeable, very intelligent. And my friend said, he's a great kid. That's his problem. See, as it's not, doesn't only apply to, um, to wealth, but also to all manner of wealth. That as we come to the kingdom of God, it's as difficult for those who have much to enter the kingdom of heaven as enter, as a camel going through the eye of a needle. This is what we've seen from the very beginning of the Bible um, with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That enlightenment, in one sense, plunges us into darkness. This is what the devil told Eve. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God, seeing good from evil. And seeing good from evil is not just, well, we now understand what evil is and what good is. They knew what that was. But to understand and to take upon for themselves the standard of good and evil, that I am now the standard of good and evil, and that kind of enlightenment actually plunges us into darkness. So what we see here in this passage with the enlightened minds of the men of Mars Hill is that ultimately, and Paul shows us this, that true enlightenment is actually to know the one true God. So Paul receives this great opportunity here in Athens and they invite him into the to Mars Hill and it says here in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So I wonder what you would say if you were invited into a setting like that. I think I would be intimidated. Um, 
For ancient rhetoric, one of the, the things that you would do is to kind of get on the good side of, of the people around you. You would try to earn their rapport. So this is a, a compliment. He is saying, I can see as I look around your city, you are in every way very religious. And that's a good thing. He says in verse 23, for as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. As we learned last week, there are many objects of their worship. We saw basically you can't throw a rock without hitting an idol in the city, in the city streets. As one man said, it's easier to find an idol than a man in Athens. There's as many as 30,000 statues in Athens. Now, what? why do they have a statue to the unknown God, an altar to the unknown God? Is it kind of just just in case? Let's cover our bases. That's kind of how I've, I've always perceived it and how I've even taught it. Um, but actually, there's a story that, um, and it's recorded by Epimenides, who is actually quoted here later, possibly. Um, this story in which there was a plague in the city and uh, they were sacrificing to the deities, trying to, to be relieved of this plague. And after some time, it wasn't working. And so they just said, let's sacrifice to some some unknown deities. And so they did that. And suddenly the plague stopped. This is the, the mythology. And actually, the the uh, the altars to the unknown God were a result of that. They lingered in the culture as a result of this story. So Paul traveling through the city and you remember from last week as he was in the marketplace, what did they accuse him of preaching foreign divinities, which was perhaps a crime preaching foreign divinities. And here he sees an open door. He sees a crack in their logic. Even you say there may be other gods. Even you say the the, the door is open for other uh, deities. And so Paul takes the opportunity and he runs through that door. Here he takes this opportunity to tell these men, these philosophers, these supposedly enlightened minds, what is God like? What is this unknown God that you don't know like? Who is he? He's in a sense shining a flashlight into the darkness. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Not just suggest, not just commend, but he's going to proclaim to them this unknown deity. And he wants to tell them about who he is and what he is about. So the first thing we see is that he is the God who made the world and everything in it. He is the creator. The God of creation. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Because he made it, he owns it. He is the God of creation. And notice throughout as we go through this, uh, the um, language that suggests universality, that suggests exclusivity. Here Paul is in this pantheistic, um, pluralistic society, and every one of his comments is leaning towards exclusivity. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. 
So he's the creator. Secondly, he is the sustainer. He providentially governs the world and the universe. He says, being the Lord of heaven and earth. The Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. So God is governing the entire universe. He is providentially guiding the entire universe. Again, exclusivity. Heaven and earth. Thirdly, so first creation, second providential uh, sustenance, and third um, decree. He is the God of decree. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all mankind and uh, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation from mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted boundaries, periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps they feel their way toward them. So you see that word determined, and this is an amazing concept that we live here where we are now because God determined our time and the boundaries of our habitation. I remember when I lived in, in Westcliff, we'd lived at this beautiful place beneath the mountains. I remember walking along this road by our house and, and taking a picture of our of our house. And I post on, on social media, like, I'm enjoying the current boundaries of my habitation that were given to me by God. And, and it's not just me and it's not just you, but even the, the borders of countries as they move and shift and change over time, God determines the allotted boundaries. He determined that the Athenians would live there then and that they would have the degree of power and boundaries to which they would have um, even then. So God is the one determining. He is the God of decree. We must remember these three things, that God is the God of creation, the God of decree, and the God of providence. And this is everything he says is contrary to the beliefs of the Athenians. Um, the Athenians had the, the well-known the, the um, pantheon of gods. When, when Paul says that God is the creator of everything, this is completely contrary to what they believe. They have, they had some gods called the progenoi, uh, protogenoi, uh, Gaia, the, the god of, that created the earth, uh, Pontus, the god that created the sea, and Uranus, the god that created the heavens. There were these gods who initially created the, the earth and everything in it, and Paul directly refutes them, so he gets on their good science. I see you're really religious. And everything you think is wrong. <laughs> Not only did they have these gods who were creators, but they also had the, the gods we're familiar with, the 12 Olympian gods, Zeus, uh, Poseidon, Artemis, Athena, um, all of these gods who were the governors of the universe. And Paul says, no, these gods do not govern the universe. God is the God of providence. God governs the universe. God is the one who determines the boundaries of our habitation. So God is God and he's 
God exclusively. He is the God of creation and of providence and of decree. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10 says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. The Shorter Catechism asks a couple of good questions. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will, whereby he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. These are the decrees of God. Then it asks, how does he execute these decrees? God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. You see those three truths there. He is the God who decrees, he is the God who creates, and he is the God who governs. He goes on to contradict some more of their beliefs. Um, He says he made from one man every nation from mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Uh, The Athenians were under the impression, as many nations and nationalities are, that they were better than everybody else. There was them and there was the barbarians. And the Athenians actually had mythology that, that they sprung up from the ground in that part of the world, that... They, they they were untainted by the impure nations around them because they weren't a conglomeration of those nations who had filtered in, but they actually sprung up as a nation from that area. So they were under that impression that they were special. And God says, no, God made from one man every nation, from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Now, why does he do this? He gives us a purpose statement here in verse 27. Why has he governed the world in this way, determining the allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling place? Um, In verse 27, that so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. They should seek God. This is the purpose of creation. This is what we're so familiar with from Romans 1. If you would like, you can turn there. Romans 1, I think you're familiar with it. Verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the definition of what we see here in Athens. And that we're supposed to look at creation and look at the world around us. And it says, we're supposed to give thanks. Wow, this God created us. Let's give thanks to him. 
the word here, um, or the idea here is that, that where it says they should seek for God is this idea is actually the word grope, that they would grope like blind men groping in the dark, grasping after God, trying to get a hold on who is this, this God who created the world and everything in it. And what does he desire of us? I think that's what we see in, I think Aristotle is a great example of the height of something like this. He's a man who was able to reason with his natural mind, unregenerate, to the point of saying, you know, I think there's an unmoved mover. I think there's a force behind everything else that is the uncaused cause. I think that's about as far as a person can get, groping in the dark while not coming all the way to a knowledge of the truth by special revelation. He goes on here, he's still describing God and this this unknown God to them. He says he's actually not far from each one of us. So, so far, everything he said has been a description of God's transcendence, his complete otherness, his holiness, that God is God who created the world and, and governs the world, and he is beyond us. But now he ha- we have a word of his imminence, that he is actually not far from each one of us, that he's right here in front of our faces. That's what Romans 1 is saying as well, that he's both transcendent and imminent. And he quotes a couple of uh, philosophers or, or poets from uh, Greek culture. The first is from perhaps Epimenides, though uh, apparently this, this phrase was used a lot and they don't know exactly where it came from. But it's, it's in him we live and move and have our being. And Stoic philosophers, which we learned about last time, um, were more pantheistic that sort of everything is God, which we see a lot in our day. Um, that's not what Paul means to say when he quotes this, this philosopher, that we're, everything is God, we're God, and in him we live and move and have our being. He's saying that in him we have life and breath and everything. He's given us everything. He's saying God is omnipresent. He's the God of creation, and, and he supplies everything we need to live. And then the second quote from the poet Aratus, um, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Again, the idea not being some sort of pantheistic thing where we spring up from the earth, of the divine earth or something like that. But And it's not, um, you know, that God is the father of every living human being, that God has adopted all regenerate human beings and, and God is our father, all of our father. No, he's just saying he created us. He is our source. He's our genesis. So Paul has described this God to these these men, these philosophers in the Areopagus. He is a God of transcendence, a God of eminence. The unknown God is the God of creation, the God of of providence and the God of decree, that he's exclusive, that he is the only God, and that he's given us a purpose, that we would grope toward him and find him. Then he gives us a, a basically a therefore. What, how are we to respond to this? 
He says in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine nature or divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art, the imagination of man. I always think of the, I love, love the story in Isaiah, Isaiah 44. Um, Isaiah, God is essentially mocking idolatry. In Isaiah 44, 13 through 17, he says, The carpenter stretches his line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass, he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles himself by a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it burns in the fire. Over the half he eats his meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays it and to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. A chunk of wood, half of it he cooks his food on, half of it he bends the knee to and worships it. That's what Paul's saying. Why would we, if this is the God who made us, who, in whom is our Genesis, why would we bend the knee to, to gold and, and stone and, and wood? It's foolishness. He warns against worshiping according to the image formed by the art and imagination of man. The art and imagination of man. That that we're somehow going to worship God according to our own understanding, according to our own standard. We're reminded as well of the story of the golden calf incident. And there's a funny line in Psalm 106. Where it says, they made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. So we see here the exclusivity and the jealousy of God. And we see the importance of the first and second commandment and the connection between the first and second commandments. First, you shall have no other gods before me. And subsequently, following from that, you shall not have any images. You shall not use your imagination and art of man to worship me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or in the waters beneath or that is on the earth. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We ultimately, in our fallen natural state, do not want God to be God. We want to be God. That's why we form things in the 
to, to worship because ultimately we would like the opportunity to form them in the way we would like them. To form the image of God into our image. But Paul says, no, Paul, the God, the unknown God that you don't know, that you must bend the knee to, he is at the transcendent God, the only God, the exclusive God, the imminent God, the sufficient God, and the exclusive God. He's the God of, of decree and of creation and providence. So he alone must be worshipped. He goes on here to give an exhortation to them. And we see here something of the, the tyranny of the law. The first and second commandment are binding. And they're binding not just on Christians. Christians, you should, you should have no other gods before me. But the whole world should have no other gods before the living God. The whole world should not create idols. This, this is not a matter of differing opinion. The moral law is universally binding, and we owe God our worship. So idolatry is a crime against God. It's a high crime to worship anything but the true and living God. So God says, or Paul says of God, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Notice the connection between the unknown God and the times of ignorance. You're, you, you don't know this God. You're ignorant of him. The time of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere. Again, notice the universality. He commands all people everywhere to repent. To repent. To turn from their sin. The sin of idolatry. The sin of unbelief. Unbelief is not a, a, a casual um, decision. Unbelief is idolatry. It's hatred, it's rebellion against God. All people everywhere are to repent. God, the one true God, who is the creator, who is the owner of the universe, has every right to make that um, command. Notice also, this is a bit of a, a harsh rendition of it, but this is the free offer of the gospel. Paul doesn't look around the room and he sees Dionysus and, and the, the, um, the lady's name. I forgot her name. But he, there's not a big E on her, their forehead that says elect. He just, he proclaims to the whole room. God commands all men everywhere to repent. He expects you to repent. You are an idolater. You must worship the one true God. Notice also there are consequences for idolatry. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Uh, I get this every now and again in in chat and my other job. People saying, I'm not sure I'm a Christian um, because... I, I don't really love Jesus. I'm just afraid of hell. Okay, that's good that you've recognized that. But there's a certain legitimacy to being aware that you have sinned 
You have fallen short of the glory of God. You're, you're headed for hell, for punishment, for the wrath of God, and you need rescue. That's the first step. That's the first step of accepting the gospel. So you're not so far off as you might think. And this is the kind of uh, rhetoric that Paul uses here. Um, this is, in all likelihood, a, a condensation of what Paul said. Um, and a lot of commentators will say, well, he, he preached about the cross as well. And maybe he did, but Luke thought it sufficient to record it in this way, that actually wrath is a, is a good motivator for belief. Because he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. I think we're afraid of that. I think we're afraid of preaching the judgment. We're about to sing a song after this by uh, John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace that is celebrating the judgment of God. I encourage you to sing that with vigor, that God is a God of judgment, of justice, and that idolatry is worthy of the wrath of God, and that all men everywhere must repent. All of this, all of Paul's Rhetoric here hinges on one thing, and it's a historical event, and it's interesting. It doesn't seem that he spends a lot of time um, defending the reality of it. He just proclaims it, and then he does this elsewhere in Acts. It all depends on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is Jesus who said, on the last day, I will separate the sheep from the goats. Somebody like that is, is insane, unless he's been risen from the dead. That God has vindicated everything Jesus said about judgment and justice and that he's going to come again in in righteousness to judge the world. Um, Shorter catechism again. This is rusty in my memory. I'll try to remember. But ask what is, um, wherein does Christ's exaltation exist? It says it exists in his rising again from the dead on the third day and ascending up into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God and coming to judge the world on the last day. That's part of Christ's glory is his judgment. That's part of his exaltation is to judge his enemies. Calvin has a helpful note here on the word righteousness. He says, neither is it added in vain that he says in righteousness or righteously that he judges in righteousness for although all men in the world confess that God is a just judge yet we see how they for the most part pamper and flatter themselves for they will not suffer God to demand an account farther than their knowledge and understanding doth reach in other words as we form God into our image we flatter ourselves. We, we also change his standard into our own image. But Jesus will judge righteously according to his perfect righteousness.
As Paul shines the flashlight into the dark, as you'd expect, not everybody is, is immediately illumined or enlightened. There are three responses. The first is simply uh, mockery. It says in verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Um, and it's particularly in that society, the resurrection of the dead was particularly offensive. Um, they were a, a dualistic society, Platonistic, and they believed that matter was bad and spirit was good. So why would God be raised from the dead bodily? That's foolishness. That That is silly. And so again, we see this idea of their perception of their own enlightenment, that their philosophy has reached... This, this is again... Uh, proto-Gnosticism or Gnosticism, they've reached a higher plane of understanding. And and Paul's words are foolishness. How could God raise be raised from the dead bodily? So they mock him. There are others. Second response is that they're curious. We'll hear more. We'll hear more about this. Uh, I remember sending a, a, a evangelistic message to a good friend of mine from high school was lost, very lost, and sent him the gospel and, and asked if he'd want to hear more at the end. And he said, sure, I'm just because I'm curious. Go ahead. And I told him more. And then I said, is that something you could believe in? He said, no, I'll continue to believe what I believe. Okay, that's the, oh, you're talking to me about something, I'll hear more. But as soon as it puts the pressure on you to, to change your ways, to repent, that's when people go the other way. So the first response is mockery, second is curiosity, and then third, uh, some believed. Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus the Areopagite, one of these philosophers, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You'll notice this again throughout Acts, that um, there seems to be a unique emphasis on on people who are in the upper crust. The, and here again, we see one of these men from, from the upper crust of the philosophers, Dionysus the Areopagite, is saved. And as well, you can see over and over again in pairs, men and women being discussed. And so I think Luke's intention there is to show that this is a universal gospel. It's not just for men, it's not just for women, but it's for everybody. So there are a few who believe, who hear the call to repent. And I think that that's really what the essence of belief is. You see this in the Gospels over and over again. Jesus hanging out with people who are needy, people who are sinners. And and the the scribes and the Pharisees are continually getting angry with him for hanging out with this group of rabble. And what does Jesus always say? He says, the sick need a physician. They're here because they recognize they need me. It's the wealthy, it's the wise of this world who for whom it is as difficult to pass for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And we see here, Dionysus is saved, and we see even in that story of the camel in the eye of the needle, Jesus says, with man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. 
So these people, these few, have run into this God who is the transcendent, awesome God and judge of the world, recognize their need. They have an awareness of their need. That's what belief is. That's what propels us to lay lay our own crown down and, and to pick up the cross and follow Jesus. So a few words of application here. Uh, simply be confident. I think I said at the beginning, I think I'd be intimidated to be in this, this group of men. But what we have and what we believe as Christians is true. It's divine wisdom. It supersedes the wisdom of, of the enlightened of this world. Um, so don't be intimidated by the intellectually enlightened. Um, don't be afraid to, to preach the, the transcendent, imminent creator, the sustainer and exclusive God of the world, the judge of the world. Don't be afraid to preach the judgment to those around you. There will come a time of reckoning and to preach the resurrection, that it all stands on the resurrection, that, that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Second, I think we have a tendency to look at Acts and see it as sort of a... Um, an example, how can we evangelize? How can we be good missionaries? And it is that, but more often than not, in the stories in the Bible, it's kind of the bad people who represent us. So we need to look at this and also probe the idolatry in our own hearts. Where have you, and we all have, where have you created in your own image a portion of your life, the standard of God that, that you have created for yourself instead? Where are you following that, your own standard? You may not go home and, and chip physical idols out of piece of stone, but you have idols in your hearts. You create gods from your own imagination. You worship God from your own imagination rather than according to his word. We fabricate things. These are the idols of our hearts, and we need to probe those and repent from them as well, all the while resting on the grace of the Lord Jesus, that we are, in fact, in Christ. And third is simply to run from darkness and into light, that to, to see your own need. That's the purpose of the law, right? Before we hear the, the assurance of pardon, we have the law, to see our own need. And to run from darkness to light, that we, we're, we're one of the refuse. Remember, I hope you're not offended. Paul says this about you. Not many of you were wise, right? We're, not many... We need Jesus. We are weak, we are sinful, and we have a need for Jesus. Be aware of your own need. And and do not be content to to grope in the darkness under the delusion that you are somehow enlightened. But that instead God would open our eyes, that we would see the darkness around us and in our own hearts and continually run to the light, run to the light of Jesus. So I'll just, uh, I'll close with Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 21. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Amen. Praise God.